Hello, this is Pastor Patrick Hines. Welcome to today's live program. And as you can tell from the uh, description, if you've seen the description of today's program, <clears throat> it's a pretty diverse uh, couple of subjects. I'm going to try to get to both of them today. Um, I'm feeling pretty tired uh, right now because I'm on prednisone because I got the worst case of poison ivy or poison oak or poison poison something um, that just tore my arms to shreds and they were it was just bad. And I had it on my forehead, I had it back here, you may remember seeing some of that still a little bit, you can see there, on my thigh and it was just messed up. And so I had to get a prescription for prednisone and I've got one more day of that. I got to take one more of those tomorrow and I should be able to be done. But I Googled the side effects and one of them is insomnia. And it didn't seem to affect me the first couple of days, but last night was um, a pretty well sleepless night. So I'm feeling like a zombie today. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I can vouch for the uh, orthodoxy or wisdom of anything I had to say today. But I'm going to I'm gonna slog forward here and try to, um, to see if I can't say some things that might be helpful to people. Um, someone uh, left a comment about, you know, how do you kind of get your kids ready for the relationship uh, type stuff. And I don't think that there is, you know, any one approach or hard, fast answer to that. Um, I'm certainly not in favor of recreational dating or anything like that. Um, I do believe that families need to be involved in this for sure. And uh, also, I don't think that it's um, of any use at all. Uh, to engage in any kind of, of relationship um, unless you are either very close to being able to get married or you are in a position where you could get married. And I know that may, might seem a little, a little radical, um, but in Scripture, romantic involvement uh, does not have uh, any purpose outside of, um, outside of uh, marriage. Uh, what's the point? There is no point to romantic involvement with anyone outside of marriage. And that's why, um, although uh, growing up, um, I wasn't given a whole lot of biblical instruction on this front, and um, things did not go overly well. By the time I became a Christian, uh, when I was about 18 years old, I, I recognized, thankfully, um, thankfully could see that I was no good for anybody. <laughs> by, the time, by the time I was 18, it was, okay, we're taking a break here uh, because you got to learn how to seek first the kingdom of God and um, you're, you need to, to be a, a godly Christian man first. Um, you, you've got to figure this stuff out and you got to get yourself together first with this. And so uh, when I met uh, my precious wife um, about a year and a half later, um, it was... I recognized once I had developed kind of feelings for her, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell the story. And, and I've told this story before. People have probably heard this before, but it is kind of humorous now that I look back on it. Um, at the time, I was a, a junior in college. Yeah, that's right. I was a junior in college. And she's a couple years older than me. And she lived about a couple miles off campus. And it was a, it was a beautiful fall day. And uh, we had been teaching the college-age Sunday school class together at the church where we went to uh, there in college. Uh, the pastor there wanted um, a guy and a girl to kind of co-lead that fellowship group. And so that's how we were introduced to each other. We were introduced to each other uh, by the pastor um, wanting us to come together to um, uh, 
lead the college fellowship group. So we taught that kind of kind of team taught that together on, on Sundays. Um, and also, um, also, uh, led fellowship events and did different, different things and did fellowship stuff, activities and things like that. And so after, uh, being around her really just for a few weeks, I mean, six, seven, eight weeks. I mean, I, there was no, um, no doubt in my mind <laughs> that she was the one. And I, I was, I was just completely smitten with her. And so I decided, okay, you've done this wrong. Um, every other time that anything like this has ever come up, you've been on kind of a long break here. And so let's, let's do this right. And so I was thinking, what should I do? And I thought, well, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna make a move or anything like that. I'm not going to, you know, ask her out on a date. It was, I just thought, you know what, you need to just go tell her how you feel about her. And she, you know, doesn't have at the time, you know, doesn't have a Christian family. So there was no father. If she had had a, a, a dad that was kind of more in the scene, um, the right thing to do would have been to talk to him first, but that just kind of wasn't really a, a thing. Um, but that's what I would advise. That's what I told my son, uh, Paul to do. Uh, and when others, other young guys have been like, you know, there's a, a girl, a Christian girl, and you know, what should I do? Should I ask her out? And I say, no, you call her father, <laughs> period. You don't go to her. You go to her dad. You go to her covenant head. Okay, so folks, um, if you have sons that are coming of age, you need to let them know. Number one, romantic involvement has no purpose outside of marriage. And so at age 13, 14, even 17, 18, 19, what's the point? What's the point? of romantic interest um, in someone if you're not ready to get married or you're not pretty close to being ready to get married. There is no point to it, okay? So, but when there is and when you are of age and when you are old enough, uh, guys, you got to call the girl's dad. Even if he's not a believer, you need to call him if he's at least in the picture or there is a father that's kind of, that fills that role in some way. You need to ask him. Now, he might tell you if he's not a Christian, well, I don't care. Sure, you just go ask her. She, she's of age. She'll, you know, she can decide that for herself. But a Christian father's not going to be like that. A Christian dad um, is going to want to talk to, I mean, for my part, um, if someone is interested in one of my daughters, my first question is, where are you a member of a church? If you're not a member of a church, forget it. The conversation's over. Okay, you're not, you're not going to come near my daughter um, if you're not a member of a church because you got to be a Christian who loves your church and is going to lead and take my daughter to church and be a spiritual leader and do family devotions. And you're going to disciple her and my grandchildren and all that kind of stuff. Another thing uh, I would say as well, um, for my daughters, one of the first questions I'm going to have is where do you go to church? Where are you a member? But also I want to know who your elders are because I want to talk to them and I want to find out what kind of man you are, you know, uh, each man will, will speak, you know, well of himself, but uh, what is it? Proverbs 27, uh, verse 2, and there's another passage. Uh, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Okay, so I want to know, what do your elders think about the kind of man that you are? What's your character like? Are you there on Sundays? Do you participate in the life of that church? Um, are you a regular attendee? Uh, are you someone who cares about the things of God? Are you able to discourse about things biblical and theological? Those are really, really important questions. So those are the kinds of things that uh, that I would ask a young man that's interested in uh, being around one of my daughters. Also, he's not going to come get my daughter and go out on a date. It's you can come and spend time with me and my family, and that's the end of it. You're not there's not going to be any alone time at all. It's just not going to happen. 
Now, that, that can be real difficult if you have children that are defiant um, or won't acquiesce to those, um, to those wishes, and that's a whole other issue. But I'm just speaking of the ideal. There, there's the ideal, there's what you should do, and then there's you know, real life, which has often uh, got a lot of heartache and difficulties in it. But if a young man's interested in one of my daughters, then I need to know where he goes to church, where he's a member of a church. I want to know what his theology is like. I want to know who his elders are because I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to, I have a lot of questions. I want to ask that guy's elders about the kind of man he is. And then he can start spending time with me uh, and my daughter and my family. We would do stuff together. And it would be a process. It would be a, a lengthy process. Okay, so let me go back to uh, uh, with my precious uh, wife of coming up on 27 years. Uh, this coming March would be 27 years. So I called her, uh, it was a Friday afternoon, it was a beautiful fall, um, or was it fall? No, or, uh, yeah, it was fall, it was the fall of my junior year. Beautiful fall day, fall colors everywhere, and I said, I have something I want to talk to you about, Can I, would you meet me in the parking lot um, by your apartment? And she said, sure. So I went down there, you know, a couple miles off campus, and it was just a gloriously cool, beautiful fall day, the sun was setting, the trees are all, you know, weather browned and orange and yellow and stuff. And that part of, of Ohio is beautiful where we went to college at Ohio University. And so she's standing there in the parking lot and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put it all on the line here. And I just told her, um, I said, Amy, I, I have feelings for you and I would like to start spending more time together and to pursue, you know, a relationship more than friends with you. And she said, Patrick, I'm not sure what God's doing with my heart or how I feel about you. <laughs> so I stood there like, hmm, okay, that's, that's not how I thought this was going to go. But, so I was like, okay, well, um, maybe when, when you are sure, if it's, a, if it's a yay or a nay, maybe we could talk more about that or... Um, and she said, I just want to think about things. I need to, I need to sit and think and, and write things, some things down. And I said, okay. I said, that, that's fine. You know, there's no pressure at all, uh, to, um, deliberate or come back with a decision or anything. Like that. <laughs> but, um, so she went back into her apartment and I just went to walk back to campus and, um, there was a big soccer field with nobody on it, uh, on the path back towards campus. And it was such a beautiful day, and the sun was starting to set, and it was so beautiful. And I was just kind of numb. I thought, man, what just happened? Uh, did she just totally stiff-arm me? Like, did she just totally say no and just feel sorry for me and just, like, let me down easily? So I went over into the field and laid down on the grass, and I forgot. I forgot that it had just rained for, like, three days. And so I laid down on the grass, and I could just feel the water soaking into the back of my shorts and my shirt and the back of my socks. So I'm just laying there, and I can feel the back of my head, the back of my shirt, the back of my pants, my, my shorts, and my socks, my shoes getting soaking wet, because I just lay down in really, really, really wet grass, and I just couldn't tell that it was wet, and I just feel it soaking up against my skin and my shirt, and I thought, this is not what I thought I'd be doing when I came out here to talk to her. I did not think I'd be laying in a field and then have to walk back to campus with the backside of my body soaking wet from all the rain. But that's what happened. That is what happened. So, um, 
couple days later, uh, Amy said she wanted to meet, and we, we sat and talked um, at the in the uh, the front room of one of the dorms. There, just sat in the in the lobby, and I saw she brought got out a piece of paper and it had all this stuff written on. It was like three pages of, of notes, and uh, I I don't hardly even remember what she said, but I thought, wow, if she sat down and took took the time to write out that much stuff. I was I was sitting there. I was seriously thinking about names of kids <laughs> while she was talking. Um, and I was thinking, I wonder what we'll name if we have have a son, what we'll name him or a daughter, what what we'll name him. And um, the only thing I remember is she said she wanted to fast for like three days uh, to see if we should, you know, be a couple. And I said, I was like, I don't, I don't need to fast. I know, I know. Um, but but anyway, as uh, to make a long story short, you know, we were married um, at by next sp- the spring after that, and it was a, you know that was just a, a wonderful thing. But when it comes to relationships and you know young people. You know, by the time they, they get 12, 13, 14, 15, they start noticing one another. And you've got to, it's good to talk to them about that. You need to really convey to them that romantic involvement has no purpose outside of marriage. That is the only purpose for romantic interest in someone. And uh, certainly people notice each other, um, you know, guys and young guys and young girls who are, you know, not anywhere close to being able to be married in our society today. Um, they notice each other and I'm, I'm against them having any kind of dating relationships or things like that. That's just putting them in tempting situations that are, um, that are going to be bad or frustrating Uh, because if people are mature, like if a, if a young man who's 18, 19, 20, if he's mature as a Christian and he's mature in his walk and he, um, is, is able, is self-sufficient financially and is providing for himself, it doesn't take long. If he meets a, a godly Christian young woman, I mean, I'm talking a matter of weeks, couple, three months, boom, they want to get married. And um, that's one of the signs that someone is mature enough is they, you know, they know right away. Uh, once someone, they're on the same page spiritually, theologically, we uh, we really care for each other. There's a, there's attraction there. Um, it doesn't take long. That's why you want to postpone romantic involvement until you are of marriageable age. Okay, so 15, 16, 17, even 18 is too young. You don't want to be doing that um, because you're just going to put yourself in frustrating uh, or tempting situations. And, you know, it's kind of presumptuous, I think, to, that, to pray, lead us not into temptation um, if you're walking into it all the time. Okay, um, TG says, the cultural norm is the man has to be older than the wife, but is it okay if the woman is older? Yep. Um, I'm married to a girl who's almost three years older than me, um, even though she looks 15 years younger. <laughs> but she's older. Uh, my son, uh, my son just uh, uh, married a girl who's uh, significantly older than him, um, and they're great. I just couldn't be happier for them, and they're just perfect. I've never met two people that that were more clearly uh, intended by God to be together. Just it was such a, a wonderful day. It was about a month ago now that uh, my my boy got married. Married a wonderful Christian girl. It's interesting because both both of us, the dads, were both Presbyterian ministers, um, and I have ten kids. He has eight kids, and our thirdborn children met each other and got married. Uh, so it's almost like being that thirdborn, they just have so much in common. So interesting. Um, yes, I do read the chat. There's Susan. Hey, Susan. Yes, 
Good, good. Um, does I read? Do I read the chat? Yep. Uh, there's Lily. Hey, Lily. Hope everyone else is watching there. You guys need to hear this. You need to hear this. Um, Pastor, can you speak a bit more on theological compatibility? Yeah, I'm a big believer in um, you need to be a full subscriptionist to the Westminster Standard. I'm just kidding. Um, but certainly, someone needs to be uh, a, a Christian uh, in their understanding of the gospel, and their understanding of the doctrine of God, um, and how we're saved, how we're justified before God. And, you know, I've seen people come from uh, non-Reformed backgrounds um, uh, who are all excited about the Reformed faith now and have discovered the great Reformation catechisms and have, have gotten really good books and um, have really gotten grounded in, in the doctrine of, of God's Word. And, you know, I think that that is really, really important. As far as uh, things that are, that are contentious, contentious and can be a problem... Um, Baptists and Presbyterians, I, I think there's, there's going to be an issue there. There's going to be an issue there. Um, because, you know, I, you know, I'm not, would not be okay with, you know, sitting through a baby dedication. <laughs> there's no way I would do that. Um, I'm, I'm not, not, wouldn't be okay with that at all. Uh, so that, that can be a real problem. That can be a real problem. Um. What if I am not from a Reformed background and not familiar with the Westminster Confession? Then, or if you're a Wesleyan, um, get a copy of the Westminster Standards and um, learn about the Reformation. Learn about uh, these things and learn about the Wesleyan tradition. That the Arminian Wesleyan tradition um, is a departure from I would maintain from biblical Reformation Christianity. Okay, um, from biblical Reformation Christianity is a it's a departure from it. Arminianism. Um, in its pure form, as it came up in the um, uh, early 1700s, really the late 16th century, early 17th century, was a giant step back towards Romanism. And it was a revival of ancient Pelagianism, a denial of original sin, a denial of man's uh, need for unconditional electing grace. It was a repudiation of the biblical reformation that had happened. And that's why Robert Godfrey called his book on the Canons of Dort, Saving the Reformation. Okay, William Roeder, because obviously the Reformed Presbyterian post-millennial worldview is quite minority. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, to me, you don't have to have the same eschatology. I mean, you can have different eschatologies. Um, but I think you do need to, you need to be Reformed in your understanding of salvation. Um, for my part, you've got to get unconditional election. Unconditional election is what biblical grace is. And so someone needs to be at least teachable. And the thing is, if someone is teachable, they should be willing to sit down with a Bible and read through the key passages and, and be in submission to them. You know, that's one of the marks that someone is a Christian is they're teachable from the text of Scripture. You can walk them through the passages of Scripture and you can show them, um, here's what it says, and this is what we are required by God to believe. And if we don't believe this, we're in sin. It's as simple as that. Okay, so... In the in the most basic sense, you know, people need to be true believers. Um, but obviously, we would we would think um, I would maintain you you've got to be. I say reformed. You got to be a Christian in your understanding of grace. You got to be biblical in your understanding of grace. Why why are we believers in Jesus Christ? Why do I sit here right now, um, repentant from my sin and with my faith resting solely and only on Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his cross? 
Why is that the case? Because God unconditionally elected me before the foundation of the world and entrusted me by name to Jesus Christ to save me. Really? So I don't, I don't, you don't attribute any, any part of your salvation to your free will? No, I don't. But, but, but didn't you believe in Jesus? Yes, I did believe in Jesus. Well, see, that, that was your part. No, it wasn't. Faith did not arise from me. Faith is a gift, a blood-purchased gift of the sovereign God, guaranteed by his decree of election. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Coming to Jesus means believing in him. Why did I believe in Jesus? I was given to Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world. So there is no um, grounds for boasting in my salvation. Absolutely none. Okay, And people need to have that in common. Who saves who is a pretty big question uh, when it comes to who you're going to marry and that kind of thing. Now, I did want to mention something uh, I was thinking about. Um, when I first got here to, uh, to Tennessee, I had heard, this is 12 years ago, a few years before that, people were starting to meet each other <clears throat> on dating websites in the church. And uh, at first I felt a little uncomfortable about that, but as I've done numerous weddings where that is how people met each other, I'm seeing, uh, apparently there's some, I, I'm not sure exactly what, I know there's a bunch of different ones and some of them are probably pretty bad. Like as far as like creepy, bad people might be, might be on them, but you can be real specific about your convictions, your beliefs and everything else. And you can find people that, that really are on the same page with you. And I've done a number of weddings like that and they're, they're great couples. And so that, to me, that's technology being put to a good use where you, you can find out if someone really is in line with what scripture says about grace and about salvation, about sacraments, about the church, about worship and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, I, at first I thought, I don't think that's the best way to meet someone is, you know, on a dating app or website like eHarmony or whatever. But there's several, several couples I know uh, who are very happily married and that is, that's how they met. That's how they met each other. So you can make technology work for you, uh, not against you when it comes to this sort of thing. But as far as um, people that have uh, children that are starting to hit those uh, the years where they start to change and they start to notice um, the other biological uh, sex that's out there and they start getting interested, uh, you need to help them understand that romantic feelings and emotions um, and all of that has one and only one purpose, and that is marriage. Okay, so the idea of recreational dating, I've heard, I think, Bodie Balcom describe recreational dating as divorce practice. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you, from the time I was way too young, you know, I was involved in things like that. It was a force in my life solely for destruction. That's all it was uh, prior to... Um, becoming serious about following Christ and recognizing that um, I needed to be a godly Christian man first. I needed to be walking with the Lord Jesus first. And and then and only then, once I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do to provide for a family and a vision to, um, uh, to lead spiritually and to be a good leader and to be a, a loving husband, only once that was in place... Did I, did I really have the right to pursue someone? And that's another another thing. The, the man has got to be the one who pursues. The man's got to be the one who's the initiator. He needs to be the one that um, 
makes the phone call to the girl's father um, and, and starts that process. And that's the way it should work. He doesn't go to the girl. He doesn't go to her. He, obviously, he needs to know her a little bit. And, and hopefully there's you know circles you can run in where you get to know people and meet people and are around people. But at the end of the day, it's going to be her father. He's the one who gives her away. And that's, that's why that's always been a part of the Christian marriage service. The father of the bride walks her down the aisle, and then the minister, as I asked a month ago, and at every wedding, I've probably done over 20 weddings now, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Until that moment, until that transfer of covenant headship, she is under her father's authority. He has to give her away. Now, obviously, um, for my part, I, I'm not going to make one of my daughters marry someone. She needs to, um, she really needs to, love that person. She needs to, to, to desire uh, to marry him. Um, but I need to approve of it. And it's the same with, with all Christian fathers. They need to approve of um, their, giving their daughter and uh, transferring her headship from their own uh, to their, her husband's. Okay, let's see. Um, Indrajit Indra Patil. I'm a Christian international student in the South U.S. No one seems interested in me because of my race and nationality, even though I'm more devout than almost all people I see date and get married. Hmm. I have given up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Just pray. Pray that God would bring you someone. If you know, marriage is a good thing. Uh, that was one thing that I really, I really had never done until I got serious about following Christ. I started praying. I, I figured the girl that I marry, and I did want to get married. I've always, you know, I wanted to get married and have children and have a family. I knew that I, I wanted to do that. But I started praying um, every day for my wife. I figured she's probably out there somewhere right now. She might even be with someone else. And so I thought I should pray for her safety and pray that um, that God would help me be um, ready for her and to be a good leader and to really be devoted to her and have a single-minded devotion uh, to her once I, I meet her um, and engage her. That's another thing, another principle that's extremely important. God wants a one-woman man. God wants a one-woman man. Um, you don't pursue multiple women. Ever. There's one. And only one. And if you're, you know, courting someone or you're going through that process with her father or if, you know, the father doesn't really care and you're spending time with someone and you're, um, you're pursuing a relationship, a serious romantic, you know, kind of relationship with marriage, you know, in your mind, um, you need to uh, make sure that uh, that is the only person that you're doing that with. You don't do that with more than one person. Uh, God wants a one-woman man and a one-man woman. And I remember hearing a Christian um, husband long ago pray, and I, I've borrowed this prayer because it's so powerful the way that this guy prayed it. He prayed, Lord, help us as men to have a single-minded devotion to our wife. I thought, that's a great prayer. That's a great prayer, especially in our psycho-crazy, sexualized culture where infidelity is so normal now and, and porn is everywhere and, and all this other crazy, loony stuff that has just ruined everything you know that's supposed to be sacred and good about marriage. Um, a single-minded devotion to your, to your wife. Job 31, verse 1. Here's a, a verse you sh we should teach to all of our sons. Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Therefore, how could I look upon a maid? 
a covenant with my eyes. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. God wants a one-woman man. God made Adam and Eve. There's just two. The two become one, not the five or the ten or the twenty. You know, God didn't take his rib cage out and make him a harem. It was one rib, one woman, one man and one woman were married, one flesh, for life, until death separates us. So that's one thing that's extraordinarily important to convey to our children. The reason you do not want to engage in this recreational dating culture where everybody's sleeping around and everyone's throwing their heart all over the place and no one has self-control is God wants a one-woman man and a one-man woman. God intends this to be lifelong and committed monogamy. It's you're committed for life until death separates us. That's the only thing that can tear asunder that one flesh union. And it's such a, a serious series of promises that you make in your wedding vows um, that do you promise to love and to cherish and to keep yourself only unto her you say to her to keep yourself only unto him yes I do I do I do I do they always say I do and then it's okay you've covenanted before God to have a single-minded devotion I mean that's why you can't do this recreational dating stuff It's got to be serious. The only time that you become romantically involved with anyone is when you're thinking about marriage. And then you you wait until you're marriage age and marriage minded. Okay? And if people are, if if young girls are quote unquote boy crazy, um, and that's a a term I've heard, uh, I've only heard, you know, women speak about girls as being boy crazy where they just are constantly, you know, noticing boys and into boys and everything. That's really not healthy, and and you need to encourage a more serious-minded approach to to that. It's great for Christian young people of the opposite biological sex to have healthy friendships with each other, to be an encouragement to one another. You know, when my little boy got real sick, um, he got a bunch of letters from a whole bunch of different people at church, um, including his peers, guys and girls, and it was so encouraging to see that. I thought, this is healthy. This is the kind of, of healthy friendship um, that's really good. Um, and we need to um, foster that kind of thing and encourage that kind of thing so that our young people are used to being around people that they love, that they might even think are, are attractive, but their their hearts aren't getting all tied up with emotion and uh, they're you know playing games or, or flirting and that that kind of thing. You, we, you don't want to do that. You don't want to promote that kind of culture because it's not healthy. You want to wait until you're old enough to get married or are close or are real close to being old enough to get married in a situation uh, where you could uh, tie the knot or, or get married uh, pretty soon. As I said, when young people are of marriageable age, if they're serious-minded Christians, it does not take long. I mean, seven, eight weeks after I met uh, Amy, and we had spent that time together, and we were preparing lessons and preparing events and everything like that. I mean, just a few weeks after that, I wanted to marry that girl. I, I wanted I wanted her, and that's all there was to it. And once I convinced her of that, <laughs> once I convinced her, um, it was like, when, when can we do this? What's the soonest we can do this? And uh, we had to wait a little while to finish college, so we we, are, we were engaged for about 10 months. But, 
it was great. You know, it was, a, it was the best, the best thing next to getting saved that, you know, that in my life, the biggest blessing was marrying my precious wife. Okay. Um, age 27, I will wait. Good. So in, Indrajit, forgive me if I'm, if I'm saying your name wrong, just be patient, be patient. Um, and, um, pray, pray that God will bring you a, a godly man and that you'll be ready. Um, and that he'll be a good leader and just pray that, because if you are going to get married, he's probably alive right now somewhere. Uh, so pray for him, pray that he will, um, have a, a big heart for Christ, that he'll be devoted uh, to you and, um, and trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord's timing. You know, Psalm 34, you know, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So you pursue the Lord and, um, uh, and trust the Lord with that. Trust the Lord with that. Okay. And, and there's no question. I, I just, this has to be said too. A lot of, um, very wonderful Christian young women, no, nobody will pursue them. And I've, I've seen that problem again and again. Um, and it's cause the guys have, have no drive. They have no vision for marriage or a family or anything like that. And that's bad too. And there's, you know, these wonderful Christian young women and no guys will pursue them because the guys just kind of, I guess are, are busy playing video games or something. I, I guess they just don't care. And that's terrible. That's terrible. We got to try to encourage our, our young men you know, have a vision to go make something of yourself. Go get a job and work your way up and, you know, develop your skills and be somebody, be something, you know, go make something of yourself. That's what we need to encourage them to do so that when they do um, see a godly Christian woman that they want to get married to and have children and lead a family and lead family worship and be part of uh, the joys and sorrows of a local church, uh, they're ready to do it. They're ready to do it, but that's a phenomenon going on all the time. The, the postponing of marriage because of immaturity is a is a major problem uh, in our society and culture today. Okay, so uh, if, if no one else has any more questions on that front, I would like to go back, you know, sw- switching gears in a major way here, going back to the Olivet Discourse. Somebody wanted me to press on here. Um, with Matthew 24, 29 and following, because they were like, well, what about the last few verses? You didn't cover the last few verses. So I was glad that people were following along so closely. That's that's really encouraging. So I'm going to go ahead and, and do that. So um, Matthew 24, switching back over to the Olivet Discourse, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay, now what is this talking about? What is this talking about? The powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's really um, developed more in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, verse 26, it says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So what does that mean? The powers of the heavens will be shaken. What that really is saying is the old covenant order, the sun, the moon, and the stars, that's a kingdom that can be shaken. And it is being replaced by the kingdom of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the kingdom which cannot be shaken. So the old covenant orders is going to be shaken. 
Uh, namely, the temple is going to be destroyed. There will no longer be any need for a temple um, in this world because the church, we, we are the temple uh, of God. We are the living stones of, of the temple of Jesus Christ, the, the chief cornerstone, it says in First Peter. So we become that temple. The sun, the moon, the stars is the, the fall of the nation of Israel. God brought uh, destruction to the nation of Israel. And so the Old Covenant order, the Old Covenant way of worship uh, through sacrifices and the, Pas the Passover lamb and the feasts and festivals and trips to Jerusalem and, and all of that is going to be shaken. Circumcision will be done away with. The dietary laws will be done away with. Passover will be done away with. And they're going to be replaced with the things which cannot be shaken, namely the gospel, the kingdom of God, and, and things like that. Okay, um, Matthew 24, verse 30, the next verse. <clears throat> then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the land, not it's really not shouldn't be translated as, as earth, but the, all the tribes of the land, meaning the tribes of Israel, will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now there's a translation translation issue there in that passage. The issue is the the meaning of the phrase, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all the tribes of the land will mourn. Now, what, what does this mean? Well, this is actually an allusion to Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse, verse uh, um, 12. And the land shall mourn. The land shall mourn. Every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, etc. Now, most see this, this part here. Jesus is coming down out of the clouds and the sky. People think this is the second coming. That then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. That that's, that is the second coming, coming on the clouds. That, that's, that can't be anything. You will see the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's got to be the second coming of Christ. And that's how I've, I've heard so many people exposit that. So many. Exposit it that way. Now, <clears throat> Jesus coming down on the clouds from the sky. He comes down to earth to establish his kingdom. That's what people think this is. That's what people think it is. There's a problem with that, though. Notice what is seen. Notice what it is that is seen in verse 30. The sign is what appears, not Jesus. The sign is that the Son of Man is in heaven. Okay, notice Jesus is quoting here in Matthew 24, verse 30. He's quoting from the book of Daniel, from Daniel 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. What is that talking about? That's not Jesus coming down to earth from heaven. It's going on the clouds, coming on the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. This is about the ascension. Matthew 24, verse 30 is not about the second coming. It's about the ascension of Christ back to heaven. I remember just being asked that simple question. He cites Daniel seven thirteen In the passage Jesus cites, what direction is the Son of Man going? Is he coming down to earth or going back to heaven? Well, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Not came to the earth, came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. 
Okay, so look at Matthew 24, verse 30 again. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's about the ascension, not the second coming. Which way is the Son of Man going? He is going from earth to the Ancient of Days. He's going up to heaven, not coming down to earth. It's a reference to the ascension, to his going back to heaven after his cross work, after his resurrection. He's quoting from Daniel 7.13, he's going up to heaven. When did this happen, and when did the people recognize this? What's interesting is Jesus told Caiaphas that he was going to see this himself. Matthew 26.64, Jesus said to Caiaphas, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus cites the same passage, Daniel 7.13, in front of Caiaphas, a passage that identifies who he is. And notice he says to Caiaphas, you will see this. In other words, you're going to be alive when this happens. He's talking to Caiaphas. That's, what, that's why, in verse 34 of Matthew 24, I, truly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's telling Caiaphas, you're going to be alive when I, when I go back to heaven. When the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days. When he comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Now listen, Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Here, here's the ascension. Listen, listen to the way this is worded. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. Okay, so he's going up to the Ancient of Days. And a cloud received him out of their sight. <laughs> coming on the clouds. Which way is it? People see the word coming and they say, that has to mean the second coming. No, it doesn't. He, okay, verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, 9. Here's the ascension. Listen to it again. I know this is like a bear you gotta, you gotta shoot a whole bunch of times before people get this. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. What does Matthew 24 verse 30 again say? All the tribes of the land will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. What does Acts 1 9 say? A cloud received him up. That's what this is talking about. Matthew 24 30 is about the ascension of Christ, not the second coming. Not the second coming. And then the angels come, standing there in white apparel, Acts 111. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The second coming is going to happen. He is coming back. But Caiaphas was, is not going to be alive for the second coming of Christ. Now, yeah, he will be raised just like every other human being in the world. But Jesus' point is, he's going to be alive for the ascension. For Jesus coming on a cloud to the Ancient of Days, going back up into heavenly glory. Okay. Um, here Jesus is taken up into heaven to the Ancient of Days, as he quoted the prophecy twice, Matthew 24, verse 30, and Matthew 26, 65. Acts 2, verse 25, Peter, preaching there at Pentecost, David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. 
therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, being, ascending back to heaven, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, right? He's, David didn't ascend into heaven. Jesus did. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucify, both Lord and Christ. So Jesus came, was coming on the clouds to the ancient of days. It's the ascension. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned to death, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why? Because the ascension happened, just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, it would. You will see the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven and the Son of Man will come on a cloud. Okay, and where is he coming? He's not coming. It's not the second coming. He's not coming down. He's going up. He's going back to the right hand of God. And that's where Stephen sees him. That's where Peter sees him in Acts chapter 2. That's where the preaching. He's back in heaven. He has ascended to the ancient of days, just like he said in Matthew 24, verse 30. What is the sign? That the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is now in heaven. Christ's redemptive work is perfect, fulfilled, and now he stands at the right hand of God after being received by the Father. So think about that verse again. Then the sign, verse Matthew 24, 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay? Coming where? Coming to the ancient of days. Coming up to the ancient of days. Acts 1, verse 9, He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He would just assume, well, coming on the clouds, it's got to be the second coming. No, it's not. It's coming on a cloud back to the Ancient of Days. Going back to heaven after his cross work, after his resurrection. And remember, once again, I just want to keep reviewing verse 34. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, he says. So they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. <clears throat> Jesus told Caiaphas in Matthew 26, 65, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples saw the Son of Man go to the Ancient of Days when he ascended right in front of them on a cloud. When verse 30 says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, different people, the disciples, Caiaphas, the Jews of Jerusalem, would see this at different times. For the Jews of Jerusalem... They really didn't see the sign that the Son of Man was in heaven until AD 70 itself, when their hopes in the temple and its priesthood were finally completely destroyed by Christ's judgment coming in AD 70. They all literally turned to dust and ashes. All their dreams and hopes turned to dust and ashes. Also, and the text says, see, as in they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. In other words, they will know. They will know that he was indeed who he claimed to be and is in heaven with the Ancient of Days. The word see often means understand. They will understand. They will understand that the Son of Man is in heaven, that he was um, the one approved by the Father. Okay. Um, John chapter 12 uses the word see in that way. In, in John 12, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn. Seeing usually means understanding um, in those kinds of contexts. Okay, now the next verse, verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 
The term angel, angelos, there in Greek, means messenger. God sends his messengers, namely ministers of the gospel, to gather together the elect from one end of heaven to the other into one body of Christ. Jews and Gentiles together in one body of Christ. Now, this passage, uh, verse 31, is often used as a rapture passage because of the mention of gathering together. But it's very important uh, to recognize here that the, the verb gather together that's used in Matthew 24, 31, uh, he will gather together his elect, that is not the same word that is translated as catching up in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. The verb um, gather together is uh, episenago, where you get uh, the word synagogue, episenago. Um, catching up, as the, the, the term that's translated into Latin as rapiamer, where we get the word rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is harpazo. And so the gathering together of Matthew 24.31 is not the same thing as being spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Okay, the term gathered together, episenago, does not refer to the rapture. It simply refers to the gathering together of something into one group. They will gather together God's elect um, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, and that's what happens with the Jews and Gentiles coming together. It's not a rapture passage. It's about the Great Commission. It's about the gospel going forth. Okay, um, <clears throat> the term rapture, it comes from the Latin translation of First uh, Thessalonians 4.17's verb harpazo, which means catching up, as translated into the Latin um, as rapiamer. Harpazo, or rapiamer, means to make off with someone's property by attacking or seizing, to steal, carry off, or drag away, to grab or seize suddenly so as to remove or gain control, to snatch or take away. Gather together, which is what Jesus is using, episenago, in Matthew 24, 31, means to bring together or to gather together. So these messengers, these angelos, these are not angelic beings, they're just ministers. Um, angels meaning um, ministers or messengers of God with the gospel. Will gather together the elect, and that's exactly what the messengers of the gospel did. They preached and gathered together both Jews and Gentiles into one body of Christ. The New Testament epistles bear out that this is exactly what the apostles and messengers of Christ went out and did. Okay, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Romans 10.12, but there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Colossians 3.9-11, uh, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, Ephesians chapter 2, 11-16, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. That's exactly what happened. Um, the people, the messengers of the Lord, the apostles, and their associates, evangelists, and ministers gathered together the people of God. It's not about the rapture. It's not angelic beings gathering everybody from all over the earth or anything like that. It's just about the Great Commission. Okay, <clears throat> now the key example of what I'm talking about here, this gathering together, uh, John eleven forty seven. 47. Um, says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Remember to the Jewish mind the land that they were on, and that temple was the very foundation of their hope and identity. If they lose the land and their temples destroyed, all their religious hopes were destroyed with them. You see, that's why they were so upset about Jesus. Um, if, if we let him keep going... We're going to lose everything. Our, our entire hope for the future is going to be destroyed. 
And listen to Caiaphas' answer to this in John eleven forty nine, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he, would, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Gather together in one. That's not the rapture. That's not the rapture. It's simply the gathering together of God's people into one body of Christ, Jews and Gentiles. So to summarize verse 31, again, verse 31 says, And he will send his messengers with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. It fits well with the Great Commission and the sending forth of messengers to preach the gospel, which gather the elect from the four winds, and it fits well with the idea that in the New Covenant, there is, as we see so clearly from many explicit passages, no distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ. Okay, Now, verse 32 of Matthew 24. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Okay. Is this about Israel becoming a nation again? I would maintain no. Um, in fact, the, the tree that's used in Romans 11 is an olive tree, not a fig tree. The simple point of verse 32 is explained in verse 33. Okay, so verse 32 and verse 33 go together. Just listen to them together. The meaning is very simple. L listen to it. 32 and 33. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. So what has he told them? Remember, this is all in response to the question. This is all in response to the question, Lord, when's that going to happen? He told them, not one stone is going to be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Because they were saying, Lord, look at all these awesome buildings. Look at all these beautiful things. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And they ask him, when's that going to happen? And his answer is, be sure that you're not deceived. Um, and he goes through all those things that we covered uh, last time. When you see the armies of Rome surrounding Jerusalem flee to the mountains and all the other stuff that's in here, many false prophets will come. There's going to be pestilences and famines. And there were an incredible concentration of, of pestilences and famines. There's famines recorded and earthquakes recorded throughout the book of Acts that, that detailed the stuff before it happened. But he tells them, it's going to happen in your lifetime. This generation will not pass away until everything I just said takes place, he says in verse 34. And so that's why verse 32 and 33 are there saying, okay, remember all the stuff that I told you. When you see all this stuff, when you see, when you see all of this, when you see the Son of Man received back up into heaven on a cloud, know that it's coming. It's right at the doors. You need to be aware of this. When you see all this stuff going on, when you hear about earthquakes and wars and famines and pestilences, and when you, you see earthquakes and everything else, know that it's about to happen. Just like when uh, the branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know summer's near. When you see all this stuff starting, you know that it's at the doors. And then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, I want to read a number of quotations about the meaning of this generation. Folks, y'all need to, to track with me here for a moment. You know, so t Tune back in if I lost you. What you think this generation means in verse 34 is going to determine a lot of what you believe about eschatology. D.A. Carson wrote this, quote, This generation can only 
with the greatest difficulty be made to mean anything other than the generation living when Jesus spoke, end quote. William Sanford Lesore wrote, quote, If this generation is taken literally, all the predictions were to take place within the lifespan of those living at that time, end quote. John Lightfoot, quote, Hence it appears plain enough that the foregoing verses are not to be understood of the last judgment, but as we said, of the destruction of Jerusalem. There were some among the disciples, particularly John, who lived to see these things come to pass. With Matthew uh, 26, 28, compare John 21, 22, and there were some rabbis alive at the time when Christ spoke these things that lived until the city was destroyed, end quote. Thomas Newton, it is to me a wonder how any man can refer part of the foregoing discourse to the destruction of Jerusalem and part to the end of the world, or any other distant event, when it is said so positively here in the conclusion, all these things shall be fulfilled in this generation, end quote. John Gill said this, quote, this is a full and clear proof that not anything that is said before verse 34 relates to the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment, and the end of the world, but that all belongs to the coming of the Son of Man and the destruction of Jerusalem and to the end of the Jewish state. And there's more stuff here, but man, we're, we're getting close to an hour. Let me see who else is uh, back is in here chatting. Um, okay. Anything? Alright, so it looks like... Uh, did anybody hear all the stuff I just said about eschatology, or are y'all still talking about um, dating and, and courtship and things like that? Um, well, when we get done here, I'm going to say a prayer for um, Indrajit here. Uh, and pray that, that God will bring you a, um, a godly man. Um, but thank you all for being here today. Uh, thanks for watching or for listening, and we'll see you all next time.